So uh, we are up to part 16, believe it or not. Uh, so uh, what we're going to learn today, we're going to look at evidence for the flood. So if there was this big globe-covering flood, you would think that there would be some evidence uh, to look at. And so we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that, wh- why do we care about the flood? One of the reasons, main reasons we care about the flood is it's a warning about God's coming judgment when Jesus returns. And the New Testament is clear about that, that that's one of the main purposes for the fact that God recorded the flood story in the Bible. Uh, We're going to look at the Grand Canyon in particular, and I'll talk to you a little bit about why the Grand Canyon is so important, why it's such a, a key piece of evidence that shows that there really was a global flood, and the fact that there's plenty of evidence all around us for this global flood, if we'll just open our eyes. Um, But first we'll do a little review of last time. So last time we talked about the preparation for the flood, the last part of the preparation, up to and including Noah and the animals and Noah's family getting onto the ark, right up to before it started raining. Um, So God tells them, he tells Noah, that he's going to destroy the world with the flood and everything on the earth is going to perish. And he tells Noah what to bring on the ark. He's already told him to build the ark. He's given him the the builder's plans, essentially, for the ark. And now he tells him exactly what needs to go onto the ark. Uh, His family, he and his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, eight people. Then he tells them seven of every clean animal, two of every unclean animal, seven of every kind of bird, and enough food to feed himself, his family, and the animals while they're on the ark. And so God makes clear that the flood is not an ordinary event. We saw that. It's not a natural event. It's an action taken by God. God said, I will flood the earth. Not that there will be a flood, but I will flood the earth, he says. Uh, There's a special word we talked about for the flood. It's mabul, um, not used for ordinary floods. There are lots of ordinary floods described in other places in the Bible, and it's a different Hebrew word. This is a special Hebrew word just for the giant earth-covering flood of Noah. And and likewise, there's a a singular Greek word, cataclysmos, from which we get the English word cataclysm, uh, that describes this flood. And there's a different Greek word for ordinary floods that's used in other places in the Bible. But cataclysmos is for this flood, the special flood that destroyed the entire earth. So the uh, animals go into the ark, and and the the Bible makes clear that... um, The animals will come to you, not that Noah has to go out and round up these animals and figure out if one's a female, is that a, you know, is that a female lizard or whatever. Uh, No, he doesn't have to figure that out. Um, He doesn't have to track them down. They come to him. Um, Then he tells them to bring the food. They've got to bring food for for, for the people, and they've got to bring food for the animals on board the ark as well. And then we see that Noah is an obedient person. Noah's righteousness is is based on his faith, and his faith is demonstrated by the fact that he's obedient to God's commands. Um, And then everything is prepared, and God tells, commands Noah to get on the ark. And there's a seven-day countdown, because in seven days he's going to start to flood. Uh, So he tells Noah to get on board the ark, and then we get repeated in the beginning of chapter 7, a repeat of this fact that Noah did according to all the Lord had commanded. It's in chapter 6, and it's repeated again in uh, the beginning of chapter 7. Just to make sure that when, when there's a Hebrew historical narrative and it repeats something, it's repeating it for emphasis. Um, 
So God's emphasizing that Noah is righteous and faithful and obedient. Uh, in the New Testament, of course, we went through this fact that there is the testimony of uh, Peter and Jesus both uh, about this flood and about um, and, and the context that Peter brings up the flood in is people talking about um, the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to be coming back. So it's in the context of Jesus' second coming that Peter brings up the flood. And he makes a parallel between what God did once in judging the entire earth is a parallel with Jesus coming back to to judge the entire earth. And so uh, Peter's talking about a day that's in the future from his perspective, Christ's second coming, uh, the universal intervention of God in world affairs. And uh, Peter's point is that God has done this before. Um, He will do it again at the second coming, direct intervention into uh, the entire affairs of the world. Peter says, oh, by the way, he's done this before. He points to two things. He points to the creation and to the flood. In the creation, of course, he made everything out of nothing. Uh, That's a a global event uh, with God's direct intervention. And the flood was a similar global event of God's intervention into, into history. And he makes a parallel between that and Jesus' second coming. And that, that, therefore, the flood provides the best warning to mankind that, yes, there will be a future judgment. There has been this judgment in the past, and there will be a judgment in the future. Um, Okay, so, and Jesus taught the same thing about his second coming, that it'll be just like the days of Noah, Jesus said. And, of course, Peter was there to listen to Jesus teaching this, and so Peter's just really repeating what Jesus taught. All right, so um, we talked about the the fact that um, not only do we have the testimony of the Bible, which is enough, but when you're talking to somebody who's an unbeliever who won't believe the Bible and ask questions about, well, is it really plausible that there was a really big boat and you could fit all the animals on there? Uh, there are, there is this wonderful study by John Wood Morapi, um, called the Noah's Ark Feasibility Study that goes through every possible angle and how it, yes, it was in fact possible. The animals could have fit, the eight people could have cared for them, and they could have fit enough food on there to be able to feed them for a year. And we went through some of the uh, details of, John really got into a lot of details, floor space allotment, water and provide waste, he has a whole chapter on waste management. Um, the construction of the ark, the manpower study of eight people, being able to do all the work that's necessary, all that kind of thing. We also talked about the stability of Noah's ark. These p- particular dimensions are perfect for stability. Uh, so believe it or not, God knew what he was doing when he designed the ark, and modern naval architects have verified that these dimensions are perfect for stability. Um, we talked about that. We talked about the fact that um, the, the the description that we have in the Bible is not it doesn't have a tremendous amount of details, but it does say that there are three decks. It does say that it's forty five feet high, so each deck would have been about fifteen feet high, and it does say that there were rooms, and so each of the decks had to be divided up into rooms according to the biblical account. And so, if you cut a cross section, then it would have uh, probably looked something like this. We know it had three decks, and we know it had rooms. 
And there's a little person in there to show you about the size of a person compared to a 15-foot high deck. Okay, so that was all that we covered last week. So, new stuff. Uh, evidence for the flood. So, we'll start out with uh, the curious fact that there are flood legends and traditions all over the world um, that, that, amount to, that amount to the thousands thousands of flood legends from around the world. Um, and so pretty much any culture that we have ancient records for has an ancient flood legend in it. Um, and the existence of these flood traditions seems to be in many aspects consistent with the Genesis account. And the detailed nature of these widely spread um, accounts points back to the biblical account. And so uh, this is just a couple to illustrate. So uh, what's along this uh, uh, axis here is details of flood stories from around the world. Uh, man in transgression, divine destruction, favored family, an ark provided, destruction by water, humans saved, animals saved, universal destruction, landing on a mountain, birds sent out, survivors worship God, divine favor on saved. Those story elements, of course, are all from the Bible. And the accounts from ancient Mesopotamia have all of them to the point where secular um, scholars think that the Bible copied this thing called the Gilgamesh epic because it's got all of those elements in it. Now, as you move further away, it has few, the stories tend to have fewer of the elements of the biblical story. Uh, but they have many of the elements of the biblical story. Um, the, the examples that are listed here are a couple from Mesopotamia, one from Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, China, India, the Cree peoples of Canada, the Cherokee peoples of the U.S., the Papago peoples of Mexico, the Aztecs, the, uh, pe the ancient people of Peru, people from the Pacific Islands, the Leeward Islands, the Fiji Islands, and Hawaii. They all have flood legends with these various elements of the biblical account. So why would that be? Why would that be? Where did it come from? So what you've got is, you've got these flood legends or traditions from cultures all around the world, and they have remarkable similarities to the biblical account of Noah's flood, but they, most of them have been corrupted in some way. So why would that be? Well, we haven't got to the Tower of Babel yet, but all the, peop the, the, the immediate descendants of the eight people that got off the boat, uh, got off the ark, were present at the Tower of Babel, and they all knew the true story. Then God confused their languages and scattered them. It makes sense that the story of the flood would be passed down in all those languages and cultures that spread out from the Tower of Babel. But without the Holy Spirit's supernatural preservation, all of those flood legends changed either a little or a lot as they were passed down. They weren't perfectly preserved. They were corrupted to a certain extent. So only the true story in Genesis <coughs> has been perfectly preserved. And that makes perfect sense from the, the biblical account. So what we see, <coughs> what we see in the actual... Uh, anthropology is what we would expect to see if there was a giant flood 
And if everybody knew it up to the point of the Tower of Babel, and then people scattered and the tradition was passed down, but it was corrupted over generations of telling and generations of telling. Without the perfect hand of the Holy Spirit to keep it, the story perfect, it became corrupted. And so all that fits uh, with the biblical account. So let's take a look at some of the facts uh, about the flood. So what are the facts about the flood? So um, the Bible tell gives us the facts about the flood, and we're going to go over just some highlights of it today. We're going to go back in detail and look at verse by verse uh, starting next week. But for today, I just want to go over the highlights and then talk about uh, the evidence that we have that these highlights are, in fact, uh, what we see from evidence, uh, can be confirmed by evidence. So, uh, starting in chapter 7, we see all the springs of the great deep birth force. So what is that? Well, we don't know exactly what that is. What are the, what are the springs of the great deep? Um, and so most commentators believe that that's water coming up from the ground. Um, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. That's rain. Rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is the beginning of the flood. Uh, and then we see, as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. So think about this ark. This is an ocean liner-sized, enormous vessel. And the Bible tells us that the floodwaters lifted the ark high above the earth. So an ocean liner-sized vessel is lifted high above the earth. So this is not a little river flooding, a little river spilling its banks is not going to lift an ocean liner-sized vessel high above the earth. Then it says, all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. And so one of the things that you'll notice if you read through this flood account is the, um, this language, this definitive, and um, the, the language about um, the extreme nature of the flood. And it's repeated for emphasis. So all the high mountains under the entire heavens are covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. So 15 cubits is about 18 inches. And so you've got uh, like 20, what are 25 feet, something like 25 feet above the highest mountain is where the flood water went to. Uh, this is the description from the Bible. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. So that's one description. And then the very next sentence is, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. This is a repeti repetition for emphasis, to make sure you get the point. Everything died. Nothing escaped. Everything died. Um, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. So it's this extreme language repeated over and over for emphasis to make sure we get the point. Everything died. Nothing was left. Only the people and animals on the ark survived this flood. Uh, God's really, really, really clear. It's, if he wanted to describe a, lo a global flood, I don't know how he could be more clear uh, than the language that's actually in the Bible. Um, so the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So this is, this is no, normally referred to as the prevailing um, segment of the flood. So 150 days, that's about five months. So about five months, the flood is covering the entire earth. 
covering up the entire earth five months. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. In other words, so the flood's covering the whole earth, but it's not continuing to go up. So the rains had stopped, the water was not coming up from the ground anymore, but it's still covering the whole world for five months, but not continuing to go up forever and ever and ever. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So first the ark touches under the water. So there's, the water's still covering the entire earth. You can't see the mountaintops, but the, 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 there's an amount of the ship that's under the water, say 20 feet or whatever, 15, 20 feet. And now the ark has touched ground under the water, that's still under the water. But it's touched the top of the mountain, under the water. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, so they got on the ark on the, in the second month of Noah's 600th year. This is the first day of the first month of his 601st year. Um, the water had dried from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. So if you do the math from what is told in the, in the Bible, you have a year plus either 10 or 11 days, depending on whether you count the day you got on and the day you got off as days on the ark. So that's what this looks like in a line diagram. So the Bible gives us great details about exactly what day and month he, they got on the ark, exactly what day and month they got off the ark. So when they get on the ark in Noah's 600th year, they get off the ark in Noah's 601st year. And so it's a year plus 10 or 11 days that they're actually on the ark. So it's a year-long flood. It's five months with covering the whole earth, and then it takes about seven months for the water to drain down. Um, and the Bible's description says that at, the, at this five-month period, it, it, the ark touches, first touches land that's still under the water, and it, there's, there's still another two and a half months before they can actually see the peaks of the mountains peeking up from the water as the water recedes. And then there's a 40-day period, and they start sending out birds, a raven, a dove, another dove. And then there's still another month after that when the ground surface looks like it doesn't have any water pulled on it, but it's kind of still muddy. And then there's another almost two months before the earth's all dried out after that. Um, and so it takes a long time for these floodwaters to go down. Once it's covering the whole earth, it, it doesn't just instantly sink back down. It takes a huge amount of time for it to run off. Um, and where did, so where did it go? So it went into the current ocean basins. Um, so uh, we have lots of good evidence for um, the current land masses that we see, the current continents having risen. And those current continents are actually made out of rock that is much less dense than the, the uh, Earth's mantle and much less dense than the ocean floors. So the ocean floors are much denser rocks than the continents. And so what happens when you have things that are higher density and lower density? The higher density thing sinks, the lower density thing rises. And that's exactly what happened in the flood, and that's exactly the features of geology that we see. Dense ocean crusts, less dense continents, less dense continents go up, more dense ocean crusts come down. So where does the water go? Water flows off of continents into the oceans. 
So, pretty simple from a, a scientific standpoint, from a hydrodynamic standpoint, but it's so much water that it took seven months for that to happen as it ran off and ran off and ran off and ran off and ran off. And so what we see from geology today is evidence of that runoff, deposition and runoff. So, but it's a long time. It's a year. So the, the big point is the Bible tells us that this flood is a big flood that covers the whole world, and it lasted a year. And so this is not like floods we see. So floods we see today don't cover the entire earth, including high, over top of high mountains, and floods we see today don't last for a year. Okay. So it's not a local flood. So this is a little picture to uh, just poke fun, a little bit fun of the idea of a local flood. So, yeah, if you have a, a flood that goes over the top of the highest mountains, it's not going to stay local. It can't stay local. That's not how water works. Um, so it's not a local flood. It's over the whole globe. Um, and so one of the things that is the most interesting and the most productive to study is the Grand Canyon. Um, and so we're going to take a look at the Grand Canyon and Noah's flood. So if there was a big flood, what would we expect to see? Uh, first, I want to talk about the fact that um, this Grand Canyon, and we're going, to, we're going to get to it at the end, this Grand Canyon was formed by the runoff from the flood. And one of the questions, one of the first questions you may get from an unbeliever is, well, then why don't we see Grand Canyons all over the earth, right? If the flood was running off from every continent all over the whole world, why don't we see, you know, dozens of Grand Canyons everywhere? And the short answer is we do. We do. There's, there's features exactly like this all over the world. Geologists call, geologists call them water gaps. It's, uh, it's big giant valleys that have been carved by water that show the, uh, you can do a geological estimate, uh, 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 analysis, and see that, that these valleys were carved by running water. Now, why don't they look like this today? Well, the reason they don't look like that today is because there's been 4,500 years of erosion, especially by water and especially by plants. Water and plants cause something that once looked like this to become very smooth and to be covered by plants and trees. And so there are valleys that look like that that have over 4,500 years been smoothed over by especially water and especially the growth of plants and trees. Why didn't that happen here? Because it's in a desert. And so there is no water, and there is no grass, and there are no trees to do all those things. And so much of the earth probably 4,500 years ago looked like that, but it doesn't today except here. And here it's been preserved because it's in a desert. So why didn't other deserts get Grand Canyons? Because other deserts are not high deserts. They're not up in the mountains for water runoff to do this from a mountain. So, I mean, the top of the Grand Canyon is seven to 8,000 feet of elevation, the top of the Grand Canyon. And so other deserts don't have that, and so they didn't get this. This is a high desert, so it got this. This is one place on the earth where it was high up in the mountains, and it's a desert, and so it was preserved. And so this is the place where we can look at the effects of the flood the very best, because it's been preserved to this day. It hasn't been that way everywhere else. I saw, did I see a question? Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Is there an example of water gaps? I, I don't know what you mean. So, local ones, maybe? Like no, so in mountains all over the place, there are water gaps that, uh, there are valleys that are cut through mountains 
that uh, when a geologist looks at the digs down into the soil into the underlying rock is made of sedimentary rock that has been cut through by water that shows the evidence of having in the past been cut through by water but it, it's all rounded and it's got grass and trees all over it because that's what's happened over the 4500 years since water cut through that mountain so when you see a mountain pass for example most of the mount, what we call mountain passes all over the earth are water gaps, what geologists describe as water gaps. So, so yeah, this something like this happened all over the earth, but it doesn't look like this now. Only here was it preserved for us to look at uh, what it looked like 4,500 years ago. Is there like a good resource that you like to use that really does a good in-depth study of that? So I would recommend Dr. Andrew Snelling's book called Earth's Catastrophic Past, Volumes 1 and 2, uh, Andrew Snelling is a PhD uh, geologist, a working geologist, that's what he does for a living, uh, and he looks at geology starting from the point of being uh, a born-again Christian who looks at everything through the lens of the Bible, and then he does geology. And so he's really good. I would uh, Most of the information that I'm going to tell you today came from Andrew Snelling, either his articles or his books. Uh, so this is pretty high-level stuff. He's a PhD geologist, and he writes like he's a PhD geologist, and so this is like this is like a geology textbook from a biblical perspective, looking at the world all of not just the Grand Canyon, but all over the world at um, evidences for God's creation and the flood. Uh, it's really good and very thorough. So if you want a really good, very thorough review, I would recommend that. If you want a more layman's um, treatment of evidences for the flood. This is a book called A Flood of Evidence. 40 Reasons Noah and the Ark Still Matter. Uh, so this is a good one too. So if, if you don't want to do the PhD level study of geology, this is this is a good one. So you can come up and take a look, take a picture of these books with your phone. So the author of this one, it's two authors, Ken Ham and Bodie Hodge. Okay. <clears throat> So yes, so there's good resources out there. There's a lot of good articles too, and I posted one of them uh, last night. I tried to do it last night, it didn't work. I did it this morning. So if you're registered for the class, uh, there's an oh, there's an article. It's like a five or six page article by Andrew Snelling. It's a, a overview, a big overview of evidences for the flood in like a five or six page article. Yes. Is there any evidence for Pangea? So that's a good question. So uh, Pangea is one of the uh, theories about the, the continents. Maybe we're all one and they broke apart. Uh, we don't have any... I would say there are, there are lots of speculations about how the continents that we have now, how they got that way, um, both from in secular geology and also from Christians that are writing from geology. So uh, Snelling talks about that in here. And he thinks the continents were worth, both were together as well. And the evidences for that is kind of the, the fits and the plates and how they look and, and the current uh, uh, tectonic plate drift and, and the fact that that could have, in the past, like during the flood, for example, could have been much faster. Um, there is a theory by a Christian scientist called catastrophic plate uh, tectonics, and he goes through all the reasons he believes that during the flood, the continents drifted very rapidly um, 
from from an initial place where they were together to where they look like today. So, yeah, I think there are, you can say, yes, there are some evidences that the continents were once together. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what would we expect to see uh, if there was a big flood? Yes? Sorry, there thought that the mountains are higher now than they used to be? Yes, most certainly. Um, most certainly, uh, because... If you had a flood that had to cover the current Himalayan mountains, that's way too much water. Way too much water. Um, so, yes, most likely. And, of course, there's lots of evidence for uplift, what we call uplift, uh, in the continents. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence that the mountains were not as high then as they are now. Okay, so if there was a big flood, what would we expect to see? Well, what we, we would expect to see is billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. That's what we would expect to see. So if the flood wiped out everything on earth, then we would expect to see billions of dead things. If, it was, if, if the flood was a big flood of water all over the earth, we would expect those dead things to be buried in sedimentary rock layers, rock layers that were laid down by water. That's sedimentary rock. And we'd expect it to be all over the earth. And so, of course, that's exactly what you see in the fossil record, is billions of dead things in sedimentary rock laid down by water all over the earth. So, and we see that in the Grand Canyon. Um, so, what if we look at the Grand Canyon through a biblical lens? So, uh, I did a trip. Uh, 2011, that's me right there, <clears throat> that's my dad, uh, we did a trip, uh, 10 days down the Colorado River, uh, 200 miles down the Colorado River, every night we just pulled off to the bank and slept under the stars, so we took 10 days to go through the Grand Canyon, and we, we went down, we went through it with a PhD scientist, <clears throat> and um, Dr. Young, and we, the purpose of the trip was to look at the evidences for the flood in the Grand Canyon. Uh, that was the trip we took. Uh, just a couple of other side notes before we go on. This man right here was 88 years old when he did the trip. And the Colorado River is not calm. I mean, there's a lot of very extreme rapids. This man, 88 years old, and as a 21-year-old, he landed on the beaches of Normandy. In 1944, and so the anniversary of Normandy actually occurred while we were on this trip, and you should have seen this man's face on the anniversary of Normandy, tears coming down his eyes, remembering what it was like to land on the beaches of Normandy, um, and, and his wife was 85 on the trip, so we had an 88 and 85 year old man, and it was the rapids are extreme on the Colorado River. I, I don't know how he survived. And this kid was eight. This kid was eight. And so we had an eight-year-old and an 88-year-old on this trip. Um, it was a great trip, fascinating, uh, through the Grand Canyon. So why does it matter uh, how the Grand Canyon formed? The Grand Canyon, we talked about this last time, is a monument to the judgment of God in the flood. And the purpose one of the purposes for the, that being recorded in there is to show that God is a righteous judge, and he's judged the whole earth before. He's going to do it again. The, that's what Peter's point was. That was what Jesus' point was in the second coming. And so, uh, so what does Satan do? So uh, Satan in the Garden of Eden, he, he asks Eve, did God really say? 
Did he really say that you die if you eat that fruit? Did he really say there's going to be a judgment? And so that's what Satan does. He, he, he tries to cast doubt on the fact that there will be a judgment, that you'll be judged. And, um, and so today, and so the, the two things that Peter pointed to to show that there was going to be a future judgment was the creation and the flood. And so what does Satan attack today? He attacks the creation and the flood. Is there really going to be a judgment? No, there's not going to be a judgment because there's never been a judgment. There was never a flood, that sort of thing. That's what Satan attacks. Uh, so that's why it's important. Uh, so we talked about this before. I want to go over it again real quick. Uh, what is science? So this is setting up science against the Bible, really, when we talk about the, the flood and whether there was a flood. So science uh, is knowledge, really. Uh, it comes from the Latin meaning having knowledge uh, to know. Uh, and, of course, many years ago, um, theology was known as the queen of the sciences, the queen of the knowledges, the most important of the knowledges. Um, but over the past 200 years, science has come to be a method of knowing, a way of discovering the truth, um, this kind of formulation of, uh, of hypotheses, and then modifying and correcting based on observations. And there's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with doing science. I'm a scientist myself. But today, many secular humanists come to believe in a philosophy of life called naturalism or scientism. The, the, and so this philosophy says that the scientific method, observation through the senses, is the only way to gain knowledge. And, of course, that's self-refuting if you think about it logically. How do they know that? How do they know that science is the only way to know? Did they get that by measuring something? No, they didn't. That's a philosophical premise. That's not a scientific premise, that science is the only way to know things. It's self-refuting. Uh, the Bible is not a science textbook, and I say thank goodness for that. Uh, when I was a physics professor at the Naval Academy, I was also the... Uh, the associate chair of the physics department. And so one of my, uh, one of the requirements of my position as the associate chair was to review textbooks for use at the Naval Academy. And so, and we were teaching basic physics, Newtonian physics, mechanics and electromagnetism. Those things have, they haven't changed the 17, since the 1700s. Um, but the science, the textbooks changed every, every uh, every couple of years, there's mistakes in the textbook. They've got to change the textbooks. About physics, it's been nailed down for 300 years, 300 plus years. Uh, so I'm, I'm very glad that the Bible is not a science textbook. Uh, but the Bible gives us propositional truth based on events that happened in real, time, real space-time history. Um, it's a history book, essentially, if you want to put it in a category. Now, it does other things, too. It has uh, poetry and prophecy and other things in there. But most of the Bible is giving us history, things that happened in the past. Uh, now, the, of course, it, the reason the Holy Spirit chose certain events in history to reveal in the scriptures is for a religious purpose, for a purpose of us understanding who God is and who we are and his plan of redemption. But the way he has gone about doing that is by telling us about historical events, things that happened in the past. Uh, so what about the Bible and science today? So all scientific observation is done in the present, unless you have a time machine. Unless you have a time machine, every scientific observation I do is done right now. Um, and so operational science, one branch of science, is applying present observations to draw conclusions about the present. And that's how we make spaceships and computers and things like that. Uh, observations in the present applied to the present. Historical science is different, a total, totally different branch of science. Uh, that's applying present observations, 
filtering them through philosophical assumptions to make guesses about the past, uh, historical science or forensic science, sometimes called that way. We look at things in the present and we guess how did, what happened in the past to make things look the way they do today. Geology is like this. We can only look at what the rocks look like now and then make guesses about what, what was it that made in, happened in the past to make the rock look the way it does right now. So th- these are different branches of science, and, and it requires different skills. Um, but the, uh, when, you're, when you're having a debate, an argument, I want to say argument, a debate with your secular friend, he will try to, uh, trust me, he will try to conflate operational and historical science. He will try to merge them. He will say, don't you believe in evolution? Don't you believe in gravity? You know, it's the same thing, you know, gravity. and No, it's not. Gravity, I can measure right now. Evolution, even by their own standards, is something that happened millions of years ago. Um, so I can't see it right now. Um, so if I'm talking about the evolution of uh, Homo sapiens from uh, an ape-like ancestor in the past, I-, I can't observe that in the present. There's no possible way to observe that in the present. Uh, even by their own admission, it happened sometime in the past. It's not the same thing as gravity. It's, a, it's a, trying to compare operational science to historical science. They're different things. Don't let them get away with that. They try. They will try it. Don't let them get away with it. So there's not even the potential for conflict between the Bible and operational science. The Bible is stuff written down a long time ago about all these historical events. Operational science is in the now. Only the historical science where poor assumptions can lead to poor guesses can be set up against the truths of the Bible. And we actually see that primarily in the controversy between historical science conducted by Christians and historical science conducted by non-Christians in the area of creation and the flood. Uh, historical science of evolutionary biology tried to use to invalidate the biblical creation account. And the historical science of geology to invalidate the biblical account of Noah's flood. That's where we see it. That's where we see Satan attacking biblical truth. And in today's 21st century America, it's typically done through science. Uh, So what happens when, when we look at the Grand Canyon? So scientist A, he's got a uniformitarian worldview. He's a secular humanist. He looks at the Grand Canyon, and his conclusion is... Naturalism, millions and billions of years, no global flood, particle at a time deposition, canyon cut by a little river. Scientist B, he's got a biblical worldview. He starts with the truths of the Bible before he looks at the Grand Canyon. He looks at the Grand Canyon and sees supernatural creation, thousands of years, a global flood, rapid deposition, and a canyon cut by the catastrophic flood. So why can two people look at the exact same evidence and come to different conclusions. It's because they started with a different lens. They started with a different lens through which they're looking at the evidence. And that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, you look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions based on your starting point. If you start with the truth of the Bible and you look at the Grand Canyon, you will see the flood. If you start without the lens of the Bible and you look at the evidence of the Grand Canyon, you won't see the flood. Um, so, uh, that's, a, that's an issue when we come at these kinds of evidence. When we're trying to do evidentiary apologetics, we sometimes run into this brick wall where 
the, the person you're talking to just can't see it. His mind, his mind can't go there uh, many times. Yes? Yeah, we'll get to the Mount St. Helens. I'll show you some uh, pictures of that. And so that's really good evidence that things can form rapidly. I'll show you a picture of uh, uh, sedimentary layers, uh, tremendous sedimentary layers, that we know for a fact from observation, we, we were there watching it, uh, happened in three hours. Three hours laid down uh, like 100 feet of sedimentary uh, rock. And then I'll show you a canyon that's actually called the Little Grand Canyon uh, by Mount St. Helens. It was carved in one day. Uh, I'll show you those. I got. I have pictures of those a little bit later. Well, uh, yes. You say not to let them close, get away with it. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm not anyone that can start to debate people when it comes to this kind of scientific stuff. Trust me. I mean, but what I do notice is that when I speak to them and tell them these things and share with them these things, what you said is really the key. They cannot speak. Yeah. And so the real truth is that what I'm basically doing is sharing with them the gospel, if you will, ultimately, yeah. but God's creation so that in hopes at some point that will, the Lord will use that to yeah. bring So that's good. That's a good point. So to see the big picture, uh, when I talk about apologetics, um, my goal in apologetics is to put a rock in their shoe. <laughs> Um, not to argue them into the kingdom, I don't think that can be done, uh, but to bother them enough so that they take a second look and make them think. Maybe, maybe my worldview is not quite right. Maybe there's something wrong. So they may, during the entire time I'm talking to them, they push back and push back and push back and push back and never concede a single point. But my hope is that it causes them to think about it later that day or later that week and think, you know, maybe maybe I don't know everything, and maybe I maybe this maybe the things that I thought were absolute truth, maybe they're not. Um, it, it's I'm trying to make the the Holy Spirit is the only one that can change a person's heart, can change a person's complete view of life, can make a dead person alive. That's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. I, I, we can't do that, um, and so the analogy that I like to use is I'm just trying to put a rock in his shoe. Um, something that bothers him, that maybe his comfortable false view of the world is not correct. There's something else to think about out there. I'm trying to jostle him into thinking about things he may not have thought about before and thereby give the Holy Spirit an opening. That's how I think about apologetics. Um, Not that I can argue into the kingdom. You you can't do that. And so uh, we're looking at the Grand Canyon uh, Noah's flood and uniformitarian genealogy. There's two possible explanations for what we see in the Grand Canyon. One is the standard secular view that a little bit of water over a huge amount of time, that this tiny little river, given enough time, could carve down through the Grand Canyon. The other view is an enormous amount of water over a short time, that a huge amount of water from the flood carved this canyon in a short time. So that's the two major views of how this thing formed. And so if you go to the Grand Canyon today, there'll be these plaques all around the Grand Canyon telling you about how this little tiny river carved this, uh, this big canyon. Um, but there's some reasons to, that that's not quite right. So, um, for example, the shape of the canyon, that's not how the shape of a river bank is. I mean, the shape of a river bank doesn't go down like in a triangle like that. That's not how rivers work. Um, they... 
their their banks are. I mean, the river is is the width that it is, and it, and it doesn't it, it doesn't carve things in a triangle. Um, but so there's there's reasons to to be able to look at that thing and say no, that's not how it, it worked. Uh, but if you look at the Grand Canyon, there's there's different there's all these layers, this kind of layer cake effect that you can see because of the canyon. You can see these layers. There's the upper horizontal layers. Uh, there's some parallel tilted strata that are that are visible in some parts of the canyon and not visible in others. And then there's the crystalline basement rock under that. Um, uh, that's different kinds of uh, crystalline rock, uh, igneous rock, and, and schist, and uh, things like that, um, and granite. So uh, these layers of the Grand Canyon, you can see them. They're there for everybody to see. These horizontal layers are there. Then you can see that there's a, an unconformity, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, there's, a, there's several different unconformities. There's what's called the Great Unconformity, and, and at that point, there's a billion years missing, a billion years. And, and it's just rock that's one rock layer right on top of another rock layer, and they say, oh, billion years missing right there. Because the rocks on the bottom are a billion years older, supposedly, than the rocks that are sitting right on top of them. And they say, oh, there's a billion years missing. Um, and then there's the tilted layers that are, that are visible in some parts of the canyon and not in others. Um, this is a section of the canyon. You can see horizontal rocks, and then there's this unconformity, and it's the horizontal rocks are sitting right on the basement rocks, crystalline basement rocks. That's a certain part of the canyon. Um, so what would you expect to see? So uh, there's me again, me and my dad. My dad dressed like the Frito Bandito there uh, with his... Um, so the canyon is very interesting in that um, the, the water that flows through the Colorado River comes from mostly... Uh, snow melt in the mountains to the north in Utah. Um, and so it's very cold, even in the summertime, very cold. Now, it doesn't, and it doesn't heat up as it comes down because there's a dam. There's a dam right before you, the place where we go on. And the water that feeds the rest of the Colorado River comes from uh, an outlet at the bottom of that lake. And so this lake is made from snow melt runoff and you take water from the bottom of that lake, and that, that's what forms the Colorado River. And so the water, we were there in June, and the water was in the 40s. Water temperature was in the 40s. And the air temperature was in the 90s. Um, and so what happens is you go through the rapids, and you become completely drenched with 40-degree water. And it's absolutely freezing uh, until, you, until you can dry off in the air. Um, okay, so uh, what are the evidences? So there's six main lines of evidence from geology that the flood happened. So fossils of sea creatures high above sea level due to the oceans being flooding, uh, having flooded the continents. Rapid burial of plants and animals. Uh, rapidly deposited sediment across vast areas of the globe. Sediment transported from one area to another over vast distances. Uh, rapid or no erosion between strata. So if this was, if the strata were laid down rapidly, we would expect to see erosion, but we don't. Uh, many strata laid down in rapid succession. So many, many layers over a short period of time. There's evidence for that in geology. So uh, we'll take very quickly uh, a look at these six lines of evidence in geology. So first, fossil sea creatures, high above sea level everywhere. So the, the highest, the rim of the Grand Canyon. So if you're at the top of the Grand Canyon looking down in, you're at between, depending on where you are in the canyon, 
you're between seven and 8,000 feet above sea level when you're at the top of that Grand Canyon. And there are, at the very highest level, the, the first layer, the Kaibab limestone, is, the, is the, the layer that's at the very top, right when you're standing at the top of the Grand Canyon. That's full of marine fossils, ocean fossils, ocean creatures. So how did the ocean creatures get to 8,000 feet above sea level? How did that happen? Well, that happens if you have a big flood that covers the whole world. You get sea creatures at 8,000 feet of elevation. Um, so uh, they had to be deposited. There had to be an ocean above there, above 8,000 feet of elevation to get sea creatures up there. Um, it's loaded with lime. It's a limestone. Um, and those sediments swept over all of northern Arizona and beyond. Uh, there's an enormous number of marine fossils in the Redwall limestone, which is a little bit further down, but still four or 5,000 feet above sea level. Uh, brachiopods, corals, uh, crinoids, bivalve, all kinds of sea creatures in these, la these layers that are thousands of feet above the current sea level. Uh, and in fact, there are... Um, all the high mountains in the world have fossils of sea creatures. The Himalayas... The highest mountains in the world, at the very top of the Himalayas, there are sea creatures. There are fossilized sea creatures in the Himalayas. All the high mountains all over the earth have sea creatures all the way uh, as far up as we've been able to look. Well, there are sea creatures. How yeah. do they, how do they explain that? So um, the, 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 the hero of the plot always is time. So what they say is, given enough time, there must have been hundreds of millions of years ago, billions of years ago, an ocean there at some time. And then, over millions of years, the, after the sea was gone, there must have, those mountains must have lifted up. That's, that's the story. So they, they say, wherever there's a sea creature, they say, well, there must have been an ocean there sometime in the past, and now, now it's been lifted up by uplift, essentially. So they they can they can put the story into the into their worldview, and they will. Any any evidence that you give to an unbeliever, he's got a he's got a big he's got a big sack over his shoulder, the fact bag, and he'll just throw those facts into his fact bag. And and if he can't explain them now, he'll say, well, we'll come up with an the scientists will come up with an explanation someday. I have faith. They won't say it that way, but they, they have faith that secular science will come up with an explanation for whatever fact you just gave them. They'll just toss it in the fact bag and move right along. That's why I say you, you, can't, argue, you, you can't argue somebody into the kingdom. You, you, it just can't be done. You have to know some evidences, and I think there are value to having evidences, and I think there's value into um, maybe shaking a person's worldview. They won't admit it while they're talking to you, but maybe when they're thinking about it later, they'll say, hmm, I wonder if my worldview is true. Maybe. And that's what you're, tr you're trying to do. But they, they will fit every piece of evidence into their worldview, and if they can't, they'll just say, the scientists will figure out someday why that is that those sea creatures are at the top of Mount Everest. Um, but from a biblical point of view, what we see is this is exactly what we would expect from a big flood covering the whole earth. Everything we see in geology is what we would expect from a flood covering the whole earth. 
Okay, uh, was there another question? Okay, uh, second evidence, rapid burial of plants and animals. Uh, billions of straight, um, um, straight-shelled chambered nautiloids, uh, uh, fossilized other marine creatures in the red wall limestone. Um, you've got um, these fossil deposits. Uh, it, we see them in the Grand Canyon, and we also see them uh, everywhere else, too. Uh, so I just want to go through a couple of other examples. So, for example, there are hundreds of thousands of marine creatures buried with amphibians, spiders, scorpions, millipedes, insects, and reptiles in a fossil graveyard in Monceau-Lamine, France. And so these fossil graveyards are all over the world, and it's creatures from different habitats and environments all mixed together in the same fossil graveyard not from the same environment. Uh, so sea creatures with land creatures, and land creatures of all different kinds that wouldn't have lived together. There's, there's no speculation that those creatures lived in the same spot, but there they are in a fossil graveyard all over the place. There's one, a famous one in Monceau-Lamine, France. There's 100,000 fossil specimens rep representing 400 species in the Maison Creek Formation near Chicago. Uh, includes ferns, insects, scorpions, tetrapods, jellyfish, mollusks, crustaceans, and fish. Sea creatures and land creatures all together in this same fossil graveyard. Uh, alligators, fish, birds, turtles, mammals, um, crustaceans, insects, all buried together in the Green River Formation in Wyoming. So sea creatures, land creatures, different kinds of land creatures that shouldn't, that nobody believes lived in the same environment all jumbled together in the same fossil graveyard. Um, so, and that we see that all over the world. And so, so what, what do the secularists say about that? Well, they say that there has been subsequent mixing. They say that sometime in the past, these must have been stratified in different layers from different times, and then somehow, subsequently, there's been what they call reworking to make these fossil graveyards. So they have an explanation. They always have an explanation, an alternate explanation. Uh, yes, go ahead. Why wouldn't we think human fossils? So good point. Why don't we see uh, human fossils? So I think the biggest reason is probably that humans were the most clever at avoiding this flood and avoiding it for the longest time, the longest possible time. And so most likely they were overwhelmed last. And the things that were overwhelmed last then were at the very top, most likely, of the sedimentary rocks that were laid down. So sedimentary rocks are uh, sediments that are mixed up in water and then they precipitate out. And so most likely things that were buried earlier were things that were overwhelmed by the flood first. Um, and so that's what we do see in many areas. Uh, there's, there's a stratification. And, and so that's why scientists look at it and say, and, and from their explanation, they say, well, that's an older thing. And they, they call it millions of years older. But in, in many places, we do see something like that, a sequence that's... But there's many places where they're out of order. And so their explanation is, well, that... Somehow it was mixed up later. Um, but when you come to humans, 
most likely humans were the cleverest at, at not getting caught by this flood. And the topmost layers were the ones that were most mixed and most um, kind of destroyed by the flood runoff. And so I think it's very unlikely that we would find things of humans. Although we may. Uh, I mean, the, the fossils that we know about are a really tiny fraction of the fossils that there are. And something like n- more than 99% of the fossils we found are sea creatures. Um, and so there's still a lot to be found. And so I, I'm not 100% convinced that we won't find human fossils sometime in, in these areas. But so far we haven't. Um, but we have found many different kinds of species from many different uh, habitats all mixed together. Um, and the secular ex- explanation is it's been, um, there's been some reworking of what was originally a perfect stress, uh, uh, perfect uh, uh, layers of in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in our story of millions of years. It, it was once perfectly layered and now it's all mixed up by reworking sometime later on. So they have an explanation. They always will have an explanation. Uh, but there's fossil graveyards all over the place uh, that cover miles in northern Arizona and southern Nevada, 10,500 square miles. Um, there's these squid-like fossils of all different sizes, small, young, and old, all mixed together. Um, and you can do a calculation of how much sediment was needed to be able to bury this many, to bring them along in, um, uh, in this slurry of sand and still, and it would take 24 cubic miles to be able to get that much sand and steel to bury that many sea creatures in that one, just in this one layer in the Redwall limestone. Um, the third thing is rapidly deposited sediment layers spread over vast areas. So we have in the Grand Canyon, we can see these layers, but we can also, uh, geologists have been able to do drills, uh, drill samples all over North America and see that these sequences of rocks are not just at the Grand Canyon, but cover a very wide area. Um, so the, some of the lower areas of the Grand Canyon, for example, the Tapete Sandstone, uh, goes across the entire U.S. It's called the Sauk Mega Sequence. And at the base of that, the lower level of the Grand Canyon, the lowest level of sedimentary rock, at the base of that thing are huge boulders, boulders the size of houses and buildings. Um, and those things look like they were deposited in, the, in a run of a gigantic storm. Uh, it's evidence of massive forces to roll these boulders the size of houses and buildings to where they are and embed them in those sedimentary rock. Uh, the Coconino sandstone, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> so what you're saying is this isn't a big rock just sitting out in the middle of a field at the bottom of the canyon. These are rocks stuck in the sandstone. Stuck in the sandstone, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just a couple of questions. Um, on, on the lowest level, we talked about the Grand Canyon. Um, is that crystallized layer or something across? So the I'm talking about the lowest level of sedimentary rock. Okay. So the lowest of sedimentary rock is sitting on top of crystalline basement rock. But okay. the thing that I was just talking about was the lowest level of sedimentary rock. Okay. Yeah. So good. Good point. Crystallized layer is that um, you know if the evolutionists are saying um, it got pushed up in the Grand Canyon is is that seen? So um, 
there are some evidences of geologic work, and I'll show you some evidences of that uh, here in a minute, where the rock uh, goes like this. It, it has the horizontal stratification like that, but then it's, it's all folded, and rock won't do that. Rock won't fold like that. So if, if you try to bend rock, what happens? It cracks. It, 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 won't, it won't go like this unless it's still wet, right? But the layers that are bent like that in the evolutionary story is millions of years. So, so how did it stay wet and not turn into rock for millions of years? That, that makes no sense at all. It had to all have been wet when the, when the geologic forces that caused it to fold are like that. And we see rock like that all over the world. There's lots of it in the Alps, for example. The Alps have lots of layers of, of uh, sedimentary rock, and they're folded <laughs> like this uh, all over the Alps. Yeah. Okay, and, and then back to the, the living things, the plants. Um, if there were you know, tons and tons of uh, living material, mm -hmm. we're probably, is it true that we're only seeing a small percentage of it as fossils? Yeah, and so we'll talk about coal in a minute. So there's lots of it in the coal. I'll talk about coal here in a minute. But lots of the plant matter uh, from the flood is in the coal seams. Pangea-type things could be all buried in big areas producing coal. Yeah, so yeah, I'll talk about the coal seams because that's really interesting too. Let me, let me keep going, and I'll, I'll, I promise to get back to that. So... Um, in addition to uh, this sandstone going all the way across the whole continent, we also see uh, the, the fossilized uh, waves from the water that was moving the sandstone that has left fossilized waves, and they're all going in the same direction across the entire North American continent. Um, that's very curious. Why would there be wave, rippling waves moving these sediments all in the same direction across an entire continent. Yeah, over millions of years. Yeah, so here's a map. So the Coconino sandstone is one of the main layers of the, uh, towards the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And so the Grand Canyon is here, but the Coconino sandstone, that same layer that we can see in the Grand Canyon, we can drill down and find it at the same layer of this extent. And for the Tapit sandstone, the very lowest of the sedimentary rock in the Grand Canyon, that goes all the way across the North American continent. Uh, the same layer of rock, all the way. That sandstone, Tapit sandstone, the exact same crystals of sand that make that exact same layer, goes all the way across North America. So that sedimentary rock was laid down at the same time all the way across North America. So the same and it has the same water currents, and so uh, we can we can we've drilled. We have drilled um, thousands of drill sites across North America, um, and so it. Um, let me see if I can if I can look it up here. Um, yeah, so fifteen thousand six hundred and fifteen sites across North America, more than a half a million measurements, and all the paleo currents go in the same direction in that Tapit sandstone. All going from the north they go from the northeast to the southwest here, and from the, the northwest to the southeast here, all flowing down this direction. So 
Uh, what ha I mean, this is giant runoff from the flood all going in the same direction is what it is. Uh, let me go back to the uh, coal seams for just a second. So, um, oh, and the sand, um, the sediment that was transported, um, well, I'm just talking about the coal. Okay, coal beds. So um, we had this question about the coal beds. So much of the plants have been compressed into coal. Um, that's where coal comes from. It's compressed plants. Um, the coal beds in the east and wood midwest of the U.S. are the same coal beds with the same plant fossils as those in Britain and Europe. It's a continuous coal seam. It's it's divided by the Atlantic Ocean, but it's the exact same coal seam in the east and midwest of the U.S. and in Britain with the same exact fossils, fossil plants associated with that coal seam. And it actually stretches all the way ar around the world to the Donetsk Basin in the North Caspian Sea in Russia, that same coal seam. So there's a continuous coal seam that goes from the Midwest to the U.S. It's actually interrupted by the Atlantic Ocean, but then it picks up again in Britain and goes all the way to Russia, same coal seam. Um, there's also in the Southern hem Hemisphere, the same coal beds are found in Australia, Antarctica, India, South Africa, and South America. They share the same plant fossils, uh, but they're different from the northern hemisphere plants. So the, there's a continuous coal seam all the way across the northern hemisphere. There's a continuous coal seam all the way across the southern hemisphere. They have the same plant fossils associated with those coal seams all the way across the southern hemisphere, but a different set in the northern hemisphere. Um, now, coal... Um, the standard story is that coal is formed over millions of years. And so, um, but coal is primarily carbon. And so you can do carbon-14 dating on coal. Now, historically, carbon-14 dating has not been done on coal because there can't possibly be any carbon-14 in there in the standard story. So the half-life of carbon... 14 is a little over 5,000 years. And in 10 half-lives, it's all gone. So if you divide something in half 10 times, you, you get nothing. Um, and so there should be, there can't possibly be any carbon-14 in anything older than 50,000 years. So anything that's assumed to be older than 50,000 years is never carbon-14 dated, because it wouldn't make any sense. And so... Um, some creation geologists, including Andrew Stel Snelling, got together and sent samples of coal to carbon-14 dating labs, who initially tried to reject them and said there can't be carbon-14 in coal because it's too old. And they said, well, we know, just run the samples anyway. And they, they took samples from all over the world, coal samples. And guess what they found? Every single one of them has carbon-14 in it. Every single one of them. And so what that means is every single coal sample they took is younger than 50,000 years. In the secular story, that's not possible. It's not possible. They say coal takes 100 million years to form. Um, but we yet we have this scientific fact that there is carbon-14 in coal seams from all over the world, meaning that it absolutely positively has to be less than 50,000 years old. Um, this is just some of the evidence that you see all over the world. They did the same thing with diamonds, by the way. And, and diamonds are supposed to take of the order of a billion years to form. 
And they took diamond, crushed it up, sent it to uh, uh, dating labs for carbon-14, and every single diamond sample they sent had carbon-14 in it too, which means every single diamond was less than 50,000 years old as well. Um, and so there are these scientific evidences that, um, that confront the standard story, uh, that, that contradict the standard story. Um, and they're out there for everyone to see if they will just open their eyes and look. So uh, I talked about the sediments being uh, transported from long dis distances away. Uh, the sediments that we find in the Coconino Sandstone in the Grand Canyon, we do um, uh, uranium lead testing on there and are able to identify where it came from. And it came from the Appalachian Mountains. The sandstone in the Grand Canyon came from the Appalachian Mountains. So how did it get there? How did it get transported all the way across the whole North? Well, it got transported because there was a giant flood runoff all the way across the North American continent that transported sand, grand, sand grains from Pennsylvania to the Grand Canyon. All right, and the sand waves all point in the same direction. Uh, we've got sand waves uh, in several formations uh, that we can see that we can track across North America that all the sand waves point in the same direction. Uh, I promise, let me, uh, I'm going to have to skip some things because we're out of time. I promise to show the, uh, there's some of the folded sediments. I promise to show Mount St. Helens. So um, this is the last thing we'll do today. So here's uh, the vicinity of Mount St. Helens. And so this is a bunch of sedimentary rock layers, uh, many, many, many sedimentary rock layers. And every, that whole thing was laid down in three hours. We, we have direct observational evidence of it being laid down in three hours. This is what the size of a person here. This is the size of those sedimentary layers that were laid down in three hours by a little flood. Laid down in three hours by a little flood, a tiny little local flood. Um, then we have this, what's, this is known as the Little Grand Canyon. This is also from Mount St. Helens. See the strat the, 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 these layers of sedimentary rock that were laid down? And this canyon, we watched it being carved in one day, the 19th of March, 1982. That, this canyon was carved in one day uh, by a little flood, one day. Um, and so we can see how these things can happen on a small scale. And in the Grand Canyon, we see how it did happen on a gigantic scale. All right, we're out of time, so let me, uh, uh, let me pray.